Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, Jill Hind, Chief Operating Officer and Director of TV at UK-based Enders Analysis, assesses the potentially catastrophic impact of tanking advertising on the industry, but sees the return of live sports as at least one reason for pay TV providers to be cheerful. Josephine Bornebush, creator, writer, director and star of Swedish fast turnaround lockdown drama Orca, talks about how she came up with the project and put it together after her upcoming Viaplay series Harmonica was suspended. But first, Rob Schwartz, Senior Vice President of Development and Current Programming at Reels, talks with Clive Whittingham about how the Hubbard Broadcasting-owned network is working its way through the pandemic and the wider state of US cable. He also talks about the channel's approach to co-productions, the kinds of shows he's looking for, and some common mistakes people make when pitching him. Rob, hi, thank you very much for for joining us. For those that uh, aren't familiar with you and your channel, can you give us a bit of an introduction? Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm Rob Swartz, and I'm uh, SVP of Development and Production at Reels. Uh, Reels is a network that very broadly focuses on Hollywood, and that, of course, includes things like movies and TV shows and recording artists um, and celebrities and fame. And we've expanded that definition of fame to include infamy as well. And so uh, we do a range of content that uh, runs from uh, your well-known movie star from George Clooney to Julia Roberts to, on the other hand, infamous criminals and crimes like uh, Charles Manson and Casey Anthony. And how was uh, business at the start of 2020 as you were looking forward to the year? How were, how were things going for the channel and what was the plan? Yeah, I mean, we have over the past few years really coalesced our programming offering to something that's quite consistent and quite clear. And we found that uh, when people find our programming, they tend to really like it. Our length of tune has been uh, quite high. Our coverage ratings have been uh, relatively good. And so I would say that, uh, you know, the network has accomplished a lot in the past few years by giving the viewers who we think are appropriate, uh, who, who are would be interested in our programming, something that connects with them. And we focus primarily on females, 25 to 54 year olds. Um, although we always want to make sure there's an access point for uh, our male viewers as well. And our ratings have, have, have reflected that. But uh, I would say that, that uh, you know, we've set up a pretty good relationship with our viewers and uh, we've had certain shows uh, that they know and love and they come back every week for. And then we've had some specials, oftentimes documentary specials that have really brought uh, a substantial audience. Um, what's it been like since this all hit? What's it like running a television channel um, in lockdown? Well, Reels is very sincere about the fact that we approach the way we do business um, as a partnership. And we really do sincerely think about our production company partners and our producers and directors as, as partners. Um, and so uh, the challenges that they have faced from a production side um, those are our challenges as well. We've tried to be as as empathetic and as as <laughs> teammatey as we would be if we were sitting in the offices with them. So uh, there's certain challenges that we all know um, that the lockdowns and and the the sicknesses uh, have provided for everybody. And so uh, it kind of has depended for us. Uh, we have a very fertile pipeline of, of content that we've been working on for a long time and will continue to work on. Um, and it really kind of has depended where in the uh, state of production shows are. 
um, in terms of how they've been impacted. So we're lucky enough that a lot of our shows were in post and our producing partners, when safe and appropriate, were able to distribute some of the production uh, some of the post functions remotely. And so we've been able to see cuts on things uh, over the past few weeks and, and months happily. There's definitely shows that have relied on interviews. We do a lot of documentary type of programming and they rely on interviews. And those, of course, have been a bit more challenging. I think producers have found a, a range of ways of, of dealing with that from just saying, hey, we're gonna have to put a pin in this interview uh, until we're able to sit down and do it right to, uh, I think, figuring out some real high quality ways to to do interviews remotely. Again, we're kind of lucky in as much as a lot of our documentary type programming relies on footage that's already been shot, whether it's archival or even sort of B-roll, whether it's Pond5, Shutterstock, Getty stuff as well. Certainly certain things have been delayed uh, and we completely understand that. But a lot of our stuff has been moving forward. And the good news is that when we seem to be putting things on the air that meet our audience's uh, desires, that, that they find it and they respond to it. And day to day, it's, it's changed your job, presumably lots of, of Zoom meetings. And I, I know that Reels isn't part of one of these big US conglomerates like a lot of your rivals are. So has that meant furloughing of staff and working on reduced team numbers, redundancies, that sort of thing? Yeah, you are right. And it's an important component to Reels' identity and, and the way we operate, which is we are an independent network. Uh, we are not part of a big conglomerate. And certainly in a challenging industry, let alone challenging times, there are oftentimes benefits to scale or being part of a portfolio of networks. There's also advantages as well. Um, we are an incredibly independent-minded but entrepreneurial company. And uh, we have sort of built the business that we're proud of over the years with independence and entrepreneurship and frankly lean operating approach as part of as, as just part of our DNA. And so we've been a, a, a relatively uh, lean shop for quite a while. And so uh, just speaking for myself personally, I've just continued to interact with as many agents and writers and writers, producers, directors as I can, both on the, the current productions we have and taking pitches. As you say, taking pitches is something that it's always great to get together with people in person, always, whether it's for lunch or whether it's for, for a pitch. And we certainly miss that. I personally miss that. But uh, we've been able to talk through the, the basic content of many, many, many pitches over the past weeks and months. Again, being grateful that oftentimes the sizzles that we have to look at or even the treatments, you know, aren't predicated upon someone having to go out and spend three weeks with the family to figure out if they're, you know, the next compelling docu-follow family. That's just not the sort of content that we do. So I feel grateful that we've been able to press forward and we have a lot of uh, producers who frankly probably find a little more time to focus on development than production right now. Uh, I think that we can all relate to the fact that the contemporary challenges of production oftentimes expand to fill what uh, energies that may have gone to development. And right now, there's a lot of great creativity that I'm being exposed to. How, to what degree did you have originals that were out in the field being filmed that had to go on hold? And what effect is that going to have on your schedules down the line? There has been delays, as I mentioned, for some content. We've also, as I mentioned, had a lot of shows that were in post. And so I don't know that, that there will be an actual hole in our programming. We actually, for an independent network, we commission a lot of original content and we do co-productions and acquisitions, uh, of course, as well. So we have a lot of content in the pipeline and we've continued to be able to press forward on it. Will things be scheduled as they were initially conceived? Unlikely, but 
I don't know that there's going to be any big holes. Do you think you'll be hitting the acquisitions market a little bit more aggressively than you may have been before to, to fill any of those gaps? Or are you confident you can squeeze through? We are very open to finding compelling programming for our network that hasn't been exposed in the U.S. before. We love the original commissions that we, that we do with our partners in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., all over the globe, really. So original commissions you know, are a huge part of what we do, will continue to be a huge part of what we do. But we have also have a really talented acquisitions team that has found shows that just hadn't had exposure in the U.S., perhaps, that are new to our viewers and that resonate with our viewers. So does it make sense that we may have a little more acquisitions as part of our portfolio than we might have otherwise. Yeah, that makes sense. But we're always looking for acquisitions. We've always had a fair amount of acquisitions given that we bring so many new hours to our viewers every year. And have you thought about or are you doing COVID specific programming, you know, COVID affecting Hollywood, COVID affecting celebrities, that sort of quick turnaround. We heard about clip shows, archive shows, things produced on Skype or Zoom. Have you gone down that road at all? There has been a lot of conversations of how to deal with the production challenges of this time. I've heard a lot of producers and other networks talk about that. That's really not the approach that we're taking, however. We do have, thankfully, a lot of our content is evergreen. It's novel and it's interesting when it first airs, but it can air uh, over time. So we really, from a content standpoint, haven't changed either the focus of the topics that we cover or really the way that we execute it. As I mentioned, I'd say some of our producers have found ways to get their interviews through remote, whether it's Zoom or other platforms, while they still maintain the quality. But we haven't really focused on doing such time-sensitive content, both time-sensitive in terms of the amount of time it takes to, to, to produce it, but also resonant with our time that we're all going through right now. Uh, we don't have a lot of that COVID-specific content. That said, you know, we have a lot of great content and a lot of our content provides a great escape for people. Much of it is very substantial and informative. So it's not like it, that we don't have that, but a lot of our content is escapist. And we found that uh, audiences, while they're dealing with, you know, the many challenges that society is dealing with, um, including being quarantined at home, have really responded to a hairband documentary that they haven't just let go uh, and thought about for, for a while. And so I would say that the way that COVID and the quarantines have manifested at Reels has been maybe the content that we've, that we've had available to people is now satiating an appetite that may be more, more available. Hearing that word escapism in quite a few of these, uh, these interviews, is that the driving factor or is it if you do it, if you do a COVID show now with Zoom interviews, it's not going to be repeatable and it's, it's not a good investment if you can't repeat it down the line. What's the sort of drive, the main driver behind that strategy? Yeah, I think it's both. I think you're right. As I said, most everything we commission, no matter what the state of the world is, we, we look to something that um, can have a long life, that can be evergreen and that can resonate with viewers today, next month, next year, in a couple of years. Uh, so evergreen is a huge part of what we do. That, so that is part of that is part of it. And then I'd say from from a production standpoint, we just haven't had to alter things that much. So let's let's address producers that are going to be um, pitching you for the for the second half of this year and uh, and into next year, but pitching over Zoom presumably. What sort of things are are reels in the market for? 
I guess there's the the subjects and then there's the sort of format of, of programming. Start with subjects, I would say, again, in particular on the music front, the music side of celebrity, we've had some really uh, nice response from our audiences and it runs the gamut from topics like George Michael to Motley Crue, which is quite a wide range. And so I'd say that recently our Breaking the Band series has, has really broken out with topics like Motley Crue, Van Halen, Kiss, Guns N' Roses. So that's something that we're thinking a lot about is if that's something that our audience is connecting with, how can we better serve that? So I think that we're, we're looking at projects that tap into to that. Staying on the celebrity side for a bit, we're really excited about doing some more documentary programming that takes subjects, celebrities, personalities, and their participation. So you take a subject or a celebrity that you already are familiar with, you're already somewhat intrigued with, you the viewer, and with their participation, we can tell really layered, oftentimes surprising, nuanced, even revelatory stories to give you a whole new appreciation for this story or this this celebrity that you knew of, but you maybe didn't know uh, the depths of. And so I'm really excited about continuing to do documentaries with the participation of celebrities where we can give brand new insights, really revelatory stories. So that that is is super exciting. Oftentimes, if the celebrity isn't available, getting participation of their family, getting participation of their surviving estate and, and that sort of thing really adds, I think, resonance and, and again, insight into the stories we can tell. So the more celebrity access that we have to, to celebrities who are uh, noteworthy, intriguing, and willing to tell a raw, honest, and revealing story, really excited about that. In the same time, uh, we continue to do crime programming as long as it's infamous and fits within uh, our brand. And we've really had some cool opportunities recently where there's been archival that people hadn't really seen or heard before. Um, our Unabomber uh, documentary that we did brought some really just incredibly raw, compelling recordings. And so I would say that we continue to look for surprising, shocking ways in to infamous stories that, that uh, we are familiar with, providing insight from either the person or people at the very center or providing archival that makes you look at it um, or understand it in a whole new way. And and you you touched a little bit at the start of that on the the formats of your shows. I'm wondering with true crime, which is a very crowded uh, genre, how does your true crime differ from say that, that I would find on ID or the serialized glossy stuff that I see on Netflix? How, how, what does a, a real true crime story look like? Well, I think a real true crime story will always start with the story that you're already familiar with. And I think that is in contrast with some uh, other really good storytelling that's happening at some of the platforms that you just mentioned. You, should, you will always be familiar with the subjects that we do. I think that, again, we rely quite heavily on having specific access or archival that will help us be able to tell these stories in a new way. So I think that there's definitely something fun about it, discovering a case that you never heard of and seeing all these wacky twists and turns, for sure. And other people do that really well. But I think it's maybe as fun or more fun to take a story that you thought you knew and to provide new insights and layers to that. So I would just like give an example. The documentary we did, Charles Manson, The Final Words. That was a documentary where we had direct phone calls with the most infamous, notorious, evil, you know, criminal mind uh, in, in, in recent times. It was shocking and it was chilling to hear his voice and it was amazing that the director was able to get that access. But then the story that we were able to tell was a new one. It offered new perspective, always putting 
what Charles Manson says in the proper context, he and his followers that we interviewed for the doc, that they are villains, they're criminals, and they, they deserve to be that, or uh, labeled as that. But what they say, it's an interesting, it, it provided an interesting lens into the activities that, were so, that are so familiar to us, and ultimately allowed us to have a conversation uh, about the criminal justice system that I think was, was, was a bit new. I think another example is we did a story, we had a show called Copycat Killers. It was a series that told stories about crimes that were in some ways influenced by pop culture movies, TV shows, or whatever. And so when we told the story of a clearly disturbed young man who was enthralled with the movie Basic Instinct and created videos where he was abusing animals and ultimately performed a murder, that was a really, really compelling episode of that series that we did several years ago. Now, Netflix has done a very, very compelling version of that now. It looks very different. It feels very different. It has a different way in. That was a story that you had never heard of. Ours was a story inspired by a movie you have definitely heard of. So I think that's a really good compare and contrast. Obviously, uh, there's, there's more people watching television than ever at the moment because we're all stuck at home. But the, the ad market has gone away at the same time because inevitable economic uh, downturn. Is it going to affect your budgets and how much you can spend on originals moving forward? Or have you, have, has that not come out in the wash yet? I mean, Reels has always been very thoughtful about the financial resources we put towards our programming so that it fits within our economic model and also provides an opportunity for our producing partners to, to make money. So I don't know that there's a new uh, attitude by uh, us at Reels in terms of how we approach this stuff. We know that we have to live within certain financial constraints. We are very thoughtful, again, about how what we can contribute to a project can be the piece of a puzzle that makes our partners whole and ultimately profitable. So I don't think that there's been an attitudinal change in how we approach things. For example, we, we haven't said, well, we used to spend X and now we're going to spend 50% of X on our content. That really isn't, isn't how we're approaching it. We're continuing to look for the projects that we think will best connect with our viewers. And to the extent that we can bring in viewers, our advertisers will benefit. Who do you go into co-production with and on what sort of projects? So first of all, we work with production companies from all over the globe, certainly in Los Angeles, but all over the United States, we work with producers. We work with a lot of producers all across Canada, and we work with a lot in the UK and beyond. So we're quite used to the dynamic where we are putting in a portion of a budget and we need to make sure that we're making a good product that the producers can end up exploiting elsewhere. Oftentimes it is concurrently commissioned, as you uh, are asking about um, with a another uh, network, and so we've done that with Canadian networks. We've done that with networks in the UK and pan-European. We've done that, so it's something that we are open to. We are we're happy to do, and I think this this idea of being a good partner extends beyond with the producer. It extends to. Um, other entities that might be making a financial investment in the content. So we do it. It's a great model. It's one that works well for everybody. And I think all parties seem to be pretty happy when we do it. As we come out the other side of this, what ways do you think it's going to change your commissioning strategy? And just as a for instance, would you be more reticent to commission something that involves international travel now? I don't know that, that when we come out of this, that our 
creative approach or a financial approach or anything will really have much change. I think, again, we always rely on our producers. They're on the ground. They're doing the hard work. Uh, we rely on them to figure out what is executable, and we never ask them to do anything that would put themselves in danger, or just never ask themselves to do any, ask ask them to do anything that is contrary to what their creative vision is for something. So our job is to hear the creative visions of our very talented producing partners and to help facilitate them to execute it in the way that they think is best. I don't think that we would weigh in on sort of the how they should produce things, and I don't get a sense that it's gonna change the type of programming that we commission. Is that, is that uh, question moving up your list when you're getting pitched though, that sort of executable how, as, as well as the idea is like, how do we do this in a, in a post COVID world? Given the length of time it takes to hear a pitch, to uh, agree together on the creative vision for it and put the business model together, put the business deal together, it just hasn't been an, an, an issue yet. If, if we're in the same situation a year from now, clearly we're going to have to all put our heads together to figure out how we execute things. But most of the content we're commissioning now is going to air in 2021 and will end up being produced whenever it's safe and, and that the producers want to produce it. Is there something you guys get pitched a lot that it just isn't, isn't you, that you could sort of ward people off doing, they get, don't quite uh, understand the channel or something? I just wonder if something comes through the door quite often that, uh, that just isn't you. So we actually talked earlier in the conversation about the production adjustments people are making to make content that is more relevant and topical. In general, as we talked about, the content that we create is meant to be evergreen. It's meant to tell certainly universally appealing stories, but also stories that can resonate with audiences for quite a long time. And so what we don't do, both creatively and, and economically, is topical programming. We don't do daily. We don't do talking about today's news. Again, both because you can't air it months, years from now, but also the economics will rarely make sense um, if something can just air day and day. So we don't do that. We understand why it could conceivably make sense under our broad banner, but that's something that we just, we just don't spend our, our limited resources on. I'd also say that there's a lot of subjects that, that are familiar to us within this broad umbrella of Hollywood fame, infamy, but we've found that our viewers really hope and expect to find something very surprising, very insightful, again, very revelatory about the stories that we tell. And so kind of doing a cursory telling or retelling of a story that we're familiar with doesn't seem to work as well for us. A lot of times the pitches that come in are logical and they're on brand and they're thoughtful and they're, they're professional, but they don't always think about what our viewer needs um, to get them to stop in their tracks uh, and to click in their program guide. So I, I would say that, that those are the shows, those are the types of shows that I would steer away from. After all of this, when we come out the other side, what sort of state do you think US cable will be in? There's, there's the macro and there's the micro of kind of what's going on in the business. Uh, on the macro level, as you say, there are certain tides that are shifting that are having an impact on, on every, every member of the ecosystem, as it were, um, some to their benefit and some to their detriment. I think that what we can do as a network is continue to really think about what connects with our viewer and then try to be in as many places as that viewer wants to consume our content. And so we are completely committed to this linear cable business of ours. And we're quite 
happy with the fact that on a length of tune basis, on a coverage rating basis, we're holding up quite well. Now, on a bigger picture, if some of our potential viewers are consuming their video through other platforms, we'd like to be there as well. And so our company has been very forward thinking in other over-the-top services, some AVOD services, uh, SVOD services, and, and the like. So I'm happy to report that we if we focus on making content that, that resonates with our viewers, we will also make any, every effort to make sure they can consume it however they're consuming it. Rob Schwartz from Reels. UK-based Enders Analysis recently gave a stark assessment of the challenges facing the TV industry in the face of the pandemic. Chief Operating Officer and Director of TV Jill Hind spoke with Nico Franks about the research firm's thinking on the potentially catastrophic impact of tanking advertising, but she also talked about why the return of live sports is providing pay TV companies with at least one reason to be cheerful. So Jill, you're a TV analyst at Enders Analysis, and um, last month Claire Enders was speaking on a Royal Television Society online panel discussion about the implications of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic um, and I understand you worked together with her on on that session and she raised a number of very interesting points and kind of predictions um, including uh, the potentially catastrophic impact of uh, a flailing advertising market and um, potentially sister channels the TV networks um, having to be shut down and also a rush of consolidation among some of the biggest players in the TV industry. So I thought it'd be great to talk to you about some of those points and flesh them out a bit. So are things really that bad? Are things really that bad? That's an interesting question. I mean, at the moment, what we've seen in terms of the advertising market, which is where we're seeing a big impact, is that sort of uh, since it's basically the start of lockdown, advertising has gone massively down. So April was down probably about 50% uh, on average across the board. Uh, in terms of ad revenue and May is looking like it's going to be just about the same, maybe slightly less than that. But what we need to look is consider actually is what, what's happened in any other previous recession we might have had. So going back to sort of the 70s, so when you go through, um, you know, even up to 2008, 2009, and of course the dot-com bubble, there what you see is going into some sort of recession. You see TV advertising hit quite heavily, but you then see it bouncing back almost immediately. Um, and the greatest sort of year-on-year -year, uh, decline in terms of quarter-on-quarter, -quarter, but you know, Q1 versus Q1, the greatest decline we've ever seen is up to about 20% year on year, but then it's sort of bounced back. So within three or four quarters, it's back to sort of where it was before, roughly, depending on, on, on which recession we're discussing. However, what we're seeing now is that quarter decline, so that'll be sort of Q2 versus Q2 last year, is going to be at least double any previous decline. So when you take that into consideration, that's a huge hit for, on advertising. And of course, lots of the broadcasters are solely reliant on advertising. So they're going to see the impact that's never been seen, never been seen before. Okay, so how long that might continue? I mean, that's that's down to many, many factors. Uh, one of which, obviously, the uh, what happens with any sort of vaccine for the coronavirus. But at the moment, it doesn't look like things are going to bounce back in the same way as they have before, because previously been just an ec economic recession. This is this is very, very different. Um, and of course, some broadcasters are affected by that more than others are. And how specific is that to the UK, or is that the case for the entire TV industry? Um, it, it's it sort of varies slightly by country, but I mean this is this is a global crisis, so we're seeing a, a similar picture everywhere. But it might not be as high, or it might be slightly greater. But the UK the UK is no different from many other countries. Obviously, somewhere like Germany, where they've um, 
should we say, handled the, 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 the virus slightly better than we have, they're not seeing as deep an impact and they might see things improving much quicker than we do. But, you know, the UK in terms of coronavirus has been pretty badly hit. So uh, we're, we're seeing, um, we're seeing a big hit in Q2 and coming into Q3. And how soon until we see some of those uh, consequences really start to bite and where will we start to see them bite? Well, what we've seen is that uh, the broadcasters and the indie sector, a lot of them, have, they've, they've taken precautions. They knew it was obvious something was happening really quickly. You know, the decline you saw, you saw literally in the space of about a week or so in March, April, and money just disappeared out of the system. So broadcasters have taken steps to redress that. So um, obviously there's been a huge thing about furloughing of staff across not just broadcasters, but the indie sector as well, but, uh, but production companies. But we've also seen reductions in programming commitments. Uh, one area that you can quite cut quite quickly is, of course, marketing. So we've seen that um, we've seen that heavily pulled back as well. Um, and so they are trying to take steps to, to sort of um, to, to mitigate the impact. Production stopped entirely back in the March April time. We're slowly now in the first week of June starting to see some things coming back. So even though TV viewing has increased massively over this period since lockdown, um, so so of course there's uh, you know viewing to SVOD players. Uh, what we're actually seeing on the screen at the moment is very different from what you'd normally expect. So we've seen the impact on screen, but of course that's also meant that uh, some production monies haven't flown into that sector. Um, so we're seeing the impact on screen, we've seen it on the production sector, it's basically shut down, starting to, to come again, come through again. But the advertising revenue, the advertising hit is going to massively impact um, the, the future spending power, should we say, of some of these broadcasters. And of course, if you're someone like Sky, Obviously, there's been no sports since mid-early March. And ITV was one of the British companies that Claire pinpointed as potentially being acquired by another major media company as a result of this. And, and that has been on the cards even prior to the pandemic. So can you see that being accelerated? Uh, that's, I mean, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I mean, ITV, as you say, has been uh, talked about that it could be acquired over the last probably about 30 years, to be honest, on and off. Uh, its share price prior to this has been declining as well. So it's sort of been lots of questions about that. Uh, and of course, it is much, much smaller than the big US, uh, US corporations. So it looks like it's one that, again, that they will be casting their eye over. I and mean, you've seen it coming out of many recessions. Actually, what you do see is a lot of consolidation across lots of different industries. Whether they'll have their eyes specifically on the UK or whether all of these American companies will be focusing in the US, it's still sort of there to be seen, really. You mentioned Sky earlier, and we're starting to see live sports returning uh, to people's screens. What impact will that have? So um, live sports, clearly uh, on sports channels themselves, we've seen since the start of lockdown, we've seen their audience decline by basically three courses, which is, uh, which is a huge impact on them. What we saw very quickly, which was what Sky did, is Sky basically said, actually, if you're a Sky Sports subscriber, you can stop paying for the channel until, the end of, uh, until, until sport reconvenes which actually meant that's, that was a huge PR boost for Sky. Of course, it's very difficult to get rid of a Sky subscription at this time uh, because you know, you, it's the time you really do want to watch television. But Sky played it very well in terms of saying to the subscribers, actually, you don't need to pay for your Sky Sports channels. We'll continue to broadcast, but obviously not Sky, not, not live sports. So they, they've, um, as a PR stunt, that was very, very good. What it also has meant for Sky, though, because of course they've been hit badly by lack of viewing, but actually they've not had to pay the Premier League, for example, for those rights, for those matches that they're not actually broadcasting. So at the moment, cash-wise, the sky is absolutely fine. 
However, what is obviously very important for them to retain their sort of, um, retain their TV subs is that is the Premier League basically coming back, which we're hoping to see in June 16th, June 19th. Um, horse racing started on the start of June, so we're slowly see, sort of seeing some some sports coming back on. But that's obviously hugely important uh, for pay TV in the UK is the sports the sports fixtures. Um, it'd be interesting to see sort of just how if they can actually manage to complete the season and when they start the next season as well. Uh, so uh, Sky has um, and Sky in previous recessions in 2008 2009 actually Sky subs performed very very well and they went up. Um, and that's one of the main reasons for that is Sky uh, movies was a lot more important than it is now, but also sports. Uh, and when recession bites and you haven't got any money, actually, uh, you can either choose to, say, get rid of your Sky subscription or actually it's cheaper to, to retain your Sky subscription and not go to the pub for those few times to watch matches. So we actually saw Sky subs go up. Of course, it'll be a very different this time if we run into a, a recession where you know, unemployment hits figures never seen before. That's very different. And that's when we might see some sort of bite. But at the moment, it looks like pay TV is going to be fairly robust, definitely in comparison to the advertising sector. And although now, right now, might not be the best time to kind of implement any form of new rules or, or, or broadcasting acts or anything like that, um, do you think now could be a good time for, for the UK industry to reset itself a little bit and readjust some of those aspects of, its, um, of the way it went about its business prior to the pandemic? So, for example... With sports, there was a lot of talk about the lack over the past few years of big football matches being available on free-to-air. Um, and when we're seeing uh, the Premier League return, some of those games are going to be available on the BBC, I think. So um, we'd, we'd started to see that um, if, you take away, if you take away the Premier League and take that out of the equation, because the Premier League and the Champions League sort of stand by themselves in terms of sports rights, but what we had seen over the past few years is, is more and more going behind a paywall. Uh, and we've seen it on and off in cricket where it goes behind and then comes back out again. But I think and we sort of, it was clearly view in the last 18 months to two years that actually for many sports, that's not in the best interest of the sport. So while you generate short-term huge revenue wins and you think actually price of rights is going to go up and up, actually what it means being behind the paywall is obviously the audience is considerably lower and actually some of those less um, popular sports saw a huge decline in participation um, and actually going to watch them. So we'd, we'd started to see that more of these sports thinking, actually, I need some free-to-air presence as well. I think what this uh, pandemic has done is actually it's accelerated that, and we're going to see more and more of them wanting to go a bit more free-to-air to get some of that publicity. And of course, apart from the Premier League and, and then the Champions League, the, rest, the other sports aren't worth as much to the to the to the likes of Sky and BT, and they will not overpay for any of those. And Sky have been arguing for a long time, they're not overpaying for sports rights. Um, when we're talking about the Premier League, and they've got a few matches free to air, um, the Champions League was a lot more popular. Well, if you remember, the Champions League used to be on both Sky and on um, ITV, so they sort of shared the matches between the two of them. And it was a, it was a much more popular uh, uh, not just sort of TV viewing, but the overall sort of buzz about the Champions League was much greater. So I think we were likely to see more of those going, some free-to-air packages anyway. But I think it's just exacerbated that trend and we'll see more, we will see more of that. Um, it should be said, of course, that Sky and the Premier League, they're showing a lot of theirs free-to-air as well. It's not just the BBC that are showing some free-to-air. But I think it's probably a good thing overall for sports. Jill Hind from Enders Analysis. 
When filming on her upcoming Viaplay musical drama Harmonica was suspended among the coronavirus pandemic, Swedish actor, writer and director Josephine Bornebush, best known for romantic series Love Me, considered how she might continue to tell stories. The result is Orca, a feature-length drama that weaves several stories of intimacy, isolation and social distancing together, filmed in a completely unique way. Bornebush spoke with Drama Quarterly editor Michael Pickard about the rapid commissioning, writing and filming process and what she learned from the experience. I'm actually in the editing room right now. So, um, I mean, we, we've been shooting for 11 days and Monday was the last one. So um, I guess I'm in a, like a post, uh, <laughs> you know, condition. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm 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 happy and and I'm editing right now. So, and, and I'm also editing my my other series at the same time. So I'm a little bit split. But I mean, broadly speaking, Sweden seems to have managed to to keep moving on and and keep producing during the I guess the last couple of months. I mean, how I mean, just generally, how has it been for you? You know, working over there. You know, while the rest rest of the world seems to have sort of shut down. Yeah, we kind of did though. I mean. I I know everyone says you know how it is how how is it in Sweden and that we are all like back to work and everything is fine. It's not really like that. Um, so I I was working on my um, on on another production I wrote. I've been working on it for two years and now a couple of weeks ago we had to postpone that that show and that was a disaster i mean it was a really big show and we've been working and we were in prep so it was like a week before shooting and everyone had to leave on like on the day and it was a big crew and everything so that was really really sad and the same day i came up with this idea (laughs) it was six weeks ago and i i thought you know if we can't shoot anything with a normal size crew and uh, we can't be you know all the actors in the same room and so on. Can we can we think outside the box? And I did. So I wrote this uh, feature film in a couple of weeks, and then we started to shoot two weeks ago. <laughs> and so we shot everything in eleven days, and uh, we're just five people shooting. So it's me and my DOP and second DOP and first AD and a sound guy. And that's, I mean, it's just the five of us. And then we have one actor every single day. So they never meet each other and we're not in the same room. So, I mean, all the productions in Sweden, almost all the productions had to, you know, pull the plug or just postpone everything. So for a couple of months, it's been really quiet in Sweden as well. I'm working in a huge building at Warner Brothers in Sweden, and it's been me and my editor here (laughs) in the whole building. So but then when you walk on, like, if you're going out, people are, I mean, the, the restaurants are full and we still go with our kids to school and, and preschool. And so it's, of course, it's a whole different way of thinking here. But at the same time, it feels like it's been a major thing for us as well. Yeah. Sorry to hear about your, your other show. Will that be, can you tell us a bit about that? And will that be resuming at some point? Yeah, we're, we're planning on shooting that, um, hopefully during the winter, but I mean, no one knows, uh, but, but that's what we're aiming for. And that's, um, that's a show, it's called Harmonica. It's about a old country duo um, in the music industry who was really big during their twenties. They were like Roxette or, uh, you know, and then we jump into the story 20 years later and they get an offer 
they're also married. It's a married couple, and they get an offer to go on a reunion tour with their old band. But it's a bit too late. But <laughs> but it, it's their last chance of you know save their marriage and also their career. But it's like twenty years too late because no one recognized them, and their relationship is on like it's not good at all. So I wrote that series with uh, a colleague and we also wrote the music and it's it's a relationship drama also with a lot of music and flashbacks and music videos and so on we shot all the flashbacks and the music videos before we had to uh, stop so so we have that <laughs> we could release that but uh, no but we're working on it and hopefully we will get started in like november and so so in the meantime you've been sort of writing orca which is uh i mean tell us just tell us a bit about the story because um we've had um a couple of kind of lockdown dramas in in the uk and and, um being filmed where it's very much been the stories of people in lockdown and and how they're i guess facing loneliness or isolation so tell us a bit about how orca you know the story of orca and how it fits into you know, the experience Sweden has, has faced over the last few weeks? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not a unique idea, <laughs> I guess. But when, when I started to think about it, I was like, I, I want to write the series, but I don't want it to, you know, be about, I don't want to write a pandemic story. I mean, everyone is so tired to talk about COVID. And I guess we have writers who write like the pandemic shows, uh, a few of them right now. So I wanted to tell the story about not be able to be there and not be able to be close to the people you want to be close to. And so Orcas, the title is based on uh, Orcas are like the most social animals in, in the world. And if they're not together, they die basically so that's what people do now i mean everyone is so depressed and it's really hard to be on the other side of the screen so i came up with 11 characters and and their stories and everyone is uh, connected so it's about a man who's talking to his mom who's dying and he can't be there for her and she tells him to call up his brother uh, because they have a really complicated relationship and he does and then we follow his brother and his brother has a really complicated relationship with his wife because she's in a hotel and they're on, you know, distancing. But we realize uh, later on that she actually chose to be there, wasn't forced to be there <laughs> because she couldn't handle the family during isolation. And uh, she has a sister and then we follow her sister and then it like, it goes on. So we're bouncing back and forth. So it's like 11 small short stories merged into one. And it's also about like grief, love, it's a love story as well. Uh, it's about a couple who's um, meeting online. Uh, it's about two friends who, who just met, but now they can't be together. And, and it's also a story about generations. It's like I casted from 16 years old up to like 80 plus. It has everything, I think, <laughs> I, I hope. But it's also really interesting because when I, when I came up with the idea, I thought, you know, how when we were in prep for the for the film, uh, we just had one week in prep. I was talking to my first AD and he was like, but if you're shooting, they have no one on the other side of the screen, the actors. So they're basically acting towards a cross and a green screen. And then they have their the other character on on the phone. So they can just hear their voice, but they have no one to 
yeah, it's, it's been it's been complicated. But now when I'm in the editing room, it feels like it's it's also a part of the story that it's it's frustrating to not be able to be there next to each other or touch each other or you know um, hug each other or whatever. So it, it's actually really intimate and and really close because you're so fragile when you can't reach out you know so uh, So how do viewers kind of see the action unfold is it through looking at the characters on their phones or is it kind of a mixture of different viewpoints yeah exactly so i had um i had my dop she she went into the room and she rigged four different cameras like really nice film cameras alexis and so on and then they have their computers or other devices uh iphone ipad so we also uh, my vfx team built they um been building like an app so which which is a really good high quality so when you film yourself through your phone it's like high quality and then we shot with gopro on the computers as well so it's a lot of like in some shots you can see the other cameras because everything is rigged up so it's like in it's it's kind of being in the big brother room because the act when when she so she set up all the cameras and then she walks out of the room and then the actor comes in and then he's by himself you know and he has cameras all over so it doesn't really matter where he's walking or what he's doing because the cameras pick pick up everything so but so it's really static because we can't move the cameras. So they are where they are. And if he falls out, you know, he's out here. That's that's what I get, you know. And then we're in the editing room, we're cutting between the phone, the computers, and also the other the other shots. So it's, it, it's also, it's, it's been another way of working because normally, I mean, I'm an actress from the, from the start and you're so used to go through a scene you know, hundred times, um, because you know when you have it there, we have to move the cameras, and then you're doing it again, and then you can, you know, take the same uh, lines for for hours. But here, it's like if you nail it, you have all the angles, so then you can move on to the next scene. So it's been an, an experiment. It started out as an experiment, but then all of a sudden, it's just grew on me, and now I I love this film. It's it's about it's so filled with everything i mean what, what was the um that pitch meeting like or, or the pitch telephone call that you had where you kind of spoke to warner brothers and, and spoke to nent group and and sort of pitched this idea and and were they initially keen for you to kind of take this bold move and and you know shoot this film in 11 days first i did love me uh, my first series i did for uh via play and and warner and i i i'm already done with season two as well and then i they bought harmonica so i've been developing that with them for many years so i guess it's like they know who i am and so on but it was actually funny it's a fun question because i my executive producer i've been working with him for 10, for 10 11 years he's been in quarantine since christmas and he he called me up the day we had to pull the plug on harmonica and he was so sad and he was like I'm so sorry, Josie. I know you've been working so hard for this project. And and he was almost crying. And he was like, so sad I can't be there. I'm so, so sorry. And I was like, 
I know, Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm sad too. But you know what? I have another idea and I'm going to write it in three weeks and we're shooting it in four and uh, we're shooting it for 11 days. I'm editing in June and we release it in September. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and then I said, and I need a green light on Monday. And it was Friday. And he was like, okay, hmm, well, uh, I don't know. Um, okay, let's go for it, he said. So, and then he he called Viaplay up and I don't know how that discussion went, but, but pretty good, uh, obviously. I, I think they said the same thing, you know, everyone is looking for content and this was really relatable. When you think about the story and the fact that this is going to air in the autumn in September, how did you have to consider, you know, where we might be in three months time, you know, compared to where you're writing it now and, and for it to remain relevant and, and maybe speak to what might be happening then? Or was that a, just a kind of a, a leap you had to take in, in the storytelling? No, but I, I think that was also why I wanted to do it so quick. I said, I, I really need to release this before it's over. But I mean, it's not like, if the world opens up now in, in September, October, everything will go back to normal. That's not what, what's gonna happen. So everyone knows what, what we've been through and it's really relatable for everyone in the world. And it's also something beautiful in this crisis that we actually connect with everyone in the world because everyone knows how it is. Everyone is home and you know struggling. So that was the reason why I wanted it goes so fast. But also, I mean, it's it's dead end to make a film that you want people to watch in the cinemas now <laughs> because no one will go there. But but also, it felt like my biggest fear is that you know it's horrible what happened to the world and to all these people who who's been sick or passed away or had some someone who did nearby but it also really worrying that it kills the creativity you know because when you pull the plug on something you've been working on for so many years many 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 people i know goes like okay whatever this is this is it and then they just go home and <laughs> sleep until until the world opens up opens up again so and i felt like okay but while we're waiting we can't just sit and be depressed we need to work and we need to think outside the box and we need to just like deal with it and uh, and this was probably my way of dealing with everything right now josephine bornebush creator of orca that's all for this episode. Remember, if you'd like to share your story of coping with COVID-19 with the international TV industry, email us using the address press at c21media.net. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.